0: John 4, Luke 4, 1 Kings 17. Jesus is not who you think he is. Jesus is not who you think he is. That is probably a good summary of what we have learned so far through the gospel of John. I mean, that's a pretty good overall takeaway of what we learned about how Jesus and his ministry is presented in this gospel. He's not who you think he is. Hundreds of years of expectation uh, brought with them hundreds of years of distortion and assumption and even projection uh, regarding who the Messiah would be and what would be the nature of his ministry. Consequently, at every turn, it seems that Jesus' character and his mission confounded the people of his day. Jesus, for his part, taught and spoke and behaved in ways that brought people face-to-face with their spiritual blindness, religious hypocrisy, and personal emptiness, as we saw last week, and racial prejudices, as we saw last week, and their need for a Savior. And he did this in such a way as completely leveled the playing field. What do I mean by that? Well, the temple officials... The lead teacher of the Jews, remember Nicodemus, the temple officials, the lead teacher of the Jews, need to be saved. The sinful Samaritan woman, the entire Samaritan town, a woman caught up in habitual sin, can be saved. At every turn, Jesus shatters people's conceptions as to who the Messiah would be and what would be the nature of his people. And so, if you thought Jesus came to smile upon your empty religiosity, then Jesus is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus was coming to join the club of the religious good old boys, then he's not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus was coming to uphold the spiritual status quo and just go along to get along, then he's not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus would overlook injustice and antipathy towards the poor in suffering, so that all you got to do is check the right religious boxes, then he's not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus would be impressed by one's status in the religious community, then he's not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus would fit neatly into one of your political parties, then Jesus is not who you think he is. In fact, if you thought Jesus was one who is going to fit neatly within one of your theological camps, then Jesus is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus would be a savior of one group or one tribe or one race or one region, then Jesus is not who you think he is. On the other hand, if you are one who felt that Jesus would come to punish the powerful and influential without regard for their soul then Jesus is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus would reject you because of your sin, then Jesus is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus belonged to others and not to you, then Jesus is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus came with judgment instead of mercy, then he is not who you think he is. If you thought Jesus came to condemn you instead of save you, then Jesus is not who you think he is. These are the misconceptions that are being shattered from the beginning of Jesus' ministry right to the cross and beyond. And so thus far in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus shatter many people's expectations regarding the Messiah. And so he cleanses the temple. Remember that? He cleanses the temple. He exposes the corrupt state of Judaism while carrying out the formalities of worship. The Jews had forgotten the hearts of worship. While purporting to be religious examples, they had long forgotten uh, mercy and justice. The Sadducees, remember, were victimizing worshipers as they got ripped off by the merchants in the temple courtyard. And so Jesus cleanses the temple, rejects the religiosity which lacked mercy and justice and compassion. And then, remember, Jesus talks to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. And in that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals, yes, Nicodemus, even you, regardless of your status, regardless of your religious pedigree, you must be born again, again, leveling the playing field. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman, he revealed God's heart towards sinners, which the religious class had disregarded. Consequently, through his actions, he challenged the antipathy and callousness and judgmentalism, which... Uh, existed among the religious of his day. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman, he emphasized the fact that genuine worship is that which is offered not in some particularly holy place, but by individuals who will worship in spirit and in truth. And then by sparking a spiritual revival, like we saw last week, by sparking a spiritual revival in a Samaritan town, Jesus crossed long-standing racial barriers and proclaimed absolute equality in the kingdom of God. You can imagine that in all of this, in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, he's developing some notoriety. And in that notoriety, there are some who look at Jesus as the hero. Right? Fame. But at the same time, he's evoking some consternation from others. And both of these themes continue throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Notoriety and welcome, among one group, and anger and consternation and hostility from another group. And so these themes continue, and these themes continue in our passage this morning. So we're going to look at John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. Let's read it together. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, Back it up. Verse 43. I started reading verse 46. After the two days, that is two days in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. From his hometown in Galilee to Jerusalem, where he cleanses the temple, And then back through Samaria, where he meets the Samaritan woman and sparks a revival in the Samaritan village. And now back to Galilee again. Jesus has come home. This is not where he grew up as a child. That was Nazareth. But this is where he has dwelt as an adult. And so now he's come home to Galilee. And notice why. This is very strange in verse 44. Verse 43, it says, after two days and two days in Samaria, he departed for Galilee and then verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. <clears throat> That's strange. This verse gives us the reason why Jesus has now come to Galilee. And it says, for he has testified that a prophet doesn't have honor in his own hometown. So why are you going to your hometown? If you have no honor in your hometown, then why are you going to the home t- your hometown? That seems like an odd reasoning. I'm going to leave Samaria and go where I'm not going to have any honor. I'm going to leave this place where there's religious revival happening in Samaria, and I'm going to go where there's no honor. That seems odd. But I think when we understand the unfolding of Jesus' ministry and the repeated themes arising, as we've already laid out, arising in his actions and his teaching, in the emerging response from the people, this is going to make sense. He actually is going back home because there's no honor there, because he's going to illustrate something. Remember that Jesus has just seen an incredible spiritual revival in a Samaritan town. Samaritans, rejected by the Jews, hated by the Jews, racial prejudice, hostility, even at some point bloodshed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there he sees a religious revival. And now he's come to Galilee. And there in Sam- Samaria, I mean, the final conclusion from the Samaritans is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And what brought that about? Think, Did Jesus do any tremendous miracles in Samaria? The conversation with the woman at the well was really it. He really just spoke his words and identified himself as the Messiah and revealed her own need to her. She runs into town. They come. They spend some time with him. They hear his own words. And then salvation comes to Samaria. No miracles. No miracles. But men and women rush to meet him, receive him him as Savior of of the world. This after, remember, Jesus was in Judea, in Jerusalem, and was rejected by the spiritual leadership there. Rejected in Jerusalem by the Jews there. Received in Samaria. And now he's back with his people again in Galilee. And what Jesus is illustrating through his various encounters is that those whom we would expect would receive the Messiah end up rejecting him. And those who we assume would be rejected by the Messiah or who would reject the Messiah end up being saved. And this goes all the way back to John chapter 1 verse 11 where John says that he came to his own, his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was a strange Jewish traveler whom the Samaritans first met with skepticism, yet they believed his words with genuine faith. Now he's come to his hometown of Galilee, where he's well-known, where he grew up, and as we're going to see, he's going to be welcomed, not with genuine faith, but he's going to be welcomed by a people who are desperately dependent upon signs and miracles. Show us something. Show us your tricks. Right? Is basically how they're going to welcome him. They're expecting, or we are expecting to see the contrast between the believing Samaritans and the Galileans. That's what's being set up here. In fact, Jesus is going to drive this point home in a moment to show the false faith of the Galileans and uh, even a genuine faith of the Gentiles by alluding to a certain passage in the Old Testament. And so now look at verse 46. While Jesus is in Galilee, his hometown, it says he's welcomed, but we are skeptical of that welcome. Okay, and we're going to see why in a minute. While he's in Galilee, it says, And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so word spreads, spreads quickly. And I think the word spreads quickly because some folks know that this particular official's son is sick at the point of death. Some know that this man is a desperate need. They know that Jesus is relatively close now. Uh, he's just about 20 miles away. And so send word to this unnamed individual. We don't know his name, but send word to him that Jesus is here. And that word spreads and the royal official hears it. And now he's going to come and to meet Jesus. Royal official, uh, probably a servant or, or, or an official, I should say, probably an official in Herod's court. We don't know for sure. Probably an official in Herod's court. And I'm going to suggest to you that the man we're about to meet is actually a Gentile. And I'll show you why I think he's a Gentile in in, in a little bit. We don't know 100% sure, but I, I think it's a safe bet. And so this man who's going to come and meet Jesus is an official in Herod's court. Herod was not a good guy. Herod was disliked by the Jews, which might be an understatement for a host of reasons. One, he built an entire city upon a Jewish cemetery, Two, he had this propensity to erect images of animals and creatures, which violated the Jews' sensibilities when it came to idolatry. Three, he was immoral. He marries his brother's wife. That's what he gets called out for by John the Baptist and ultimately leads to him executing John the Baptist. There's no love lost between the Jews and Herod, okay? And this man we're about to meet is an official in Herod's court. That might tell you something about the attitude of the Jews and maybe even these Galileans towards the man that's about to enter the scene here and meet Jesus. And so this royal official receives word that Jesus is back home in Galilee and he makes the journey. 15, 20 miles, and he's going to plead with Jesus to heal his son who is on the brink of death. Look in verse 48. So Jesus says to him, After he says, come down to heal my son, for he's at the point of death, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, that seems callous, doesn't it? A desperate father. I mean, put yourself in his position. You're a father. Your son is at the brink of death. You're absolutely desperate. Obviously, doctors are no help at this point. He hears Jesus is here. And so I believe that you can heal my son. And Jesus' response is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe it doesn't quite seem to uh, go along with what we've seen about Jesus' character thus far, because generally he performs miracles of mercy and he he alleviates the suffering that individuals are suffering as a result of the curse of sin, generally. But here he seems hesitant. What's happening? Well, first of all, in verse 48, notice that unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. You can't tell in the English, but in the Greek, those are plural. The U is plural. Jesus is not simply addressing this man, and I think he's not primarily addressing this man. I think he is speaking to this man in earshot of all the Galileans around him so they will hear what he's saying. He's going to use this individual as an illustration to the Galileans all around him. And so he speaks to the man and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe as if he's grouping this man in with all the other Galileans around him who we're going to see are just desperate for signs. And so look in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Why did they welcome him? Because they saw the signs. John chapter 2, verse 23, I think it is. It makes it plain that he did miracles in Jerusalem. So... That's why the Galileans are welcoming him. And so Jesus is really addressing that dependency upon signs and wonders in speaking to this man. That'll become clear in a little bit, I think. And so what we find here is part of a repeated problem among those who claim to believe in Jesus. It's one thing to believe in Jesus, taking him at his word regarding who he is and how to be saved. It's another entirely different thing to merely believe that Jesus can do miracles, and the Galileans were in that camp at this point. And so Jesus repeatedly denounces a faith or a following following, which is simply looking for self-serving signs and wonders. To believe that Jesus can perform miracles is not the same as seeing his miracles as a confirmation that he is the one sent by the Father to defeat sin and death and Satan and to be the Savior of the world. The Galileans were guilty of that kind of deficient faith. Remember, the Samaritans, again, saw no miracle, only heard the words of Jesus, and many were saved. So Jesus responds to this official this way because he's fully intending on performing a miracle. He's fully intending in in healing this man's son, but wants it clearly understood that saving faith goes far beyond miracles and signs and wonders. Now, this is important for us to notice. Because there are many, even today, who claim to believe in Jesus, but have an unhealthy fixation on signs and wonders. There's a desperate need always to experience something new, the, some new thing, right? Jesus, to them, is a vending machine of miracles. And when they don't see miracles, they simply invent them where they don't exist. Think about this image. The other day, uh, we we'll go to my van and the tire's flat. I don't know how it happened. Uh, So I put my little air compressor on it, and I pumped it up. I just kind of want to see how fast this leak was, right? And it it took a good two days for it to go flat again. And so I pumped it up again. I brought it to the place and got the tire uh, repaired. And uh, you could imagine, if that was a fast leak, I would have pumped it up. And maybe I wouldn't even have made it to the repair place. And the whole time I'm going, it's getting lower and lower and lower and lower until next thing I know, I'm driving on a flat tire. Imagine you have somebody who has a vehicle with four flat tires, pumps them all up, and just starts driving. And maybe they can go a whole week, but the whole week they just keep them lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And I'm picturing in my mind maybe a woman there, doesn't have to be a woman. Um, I'm picturing somebody there with the tires pumped up and they're driving, and they got the stereo blaring and they're having a good old time. Meanwhile, the whole time they're just getting flatter and flatter, and flatter. until the end of the week, just thum, 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 flat. You know that some churches, that's the whole nature of the ministry. You come into church, you just get pumped up. It's going to pump you up. And uh, we want you to have some wonderful experience. And that's just going to pump the air into those tires. And you're going to go on your way and you're going to turn on that radio and you're going to be singing and you're going to have a great old time. The whole time, you're just getting weaker and weaker and the air is going out of the tires. And you just hope you can make it to next Sunday so you can get back in there so you can get just pumped up again, right? That's the nature of a faith that's dependent upon experience. That's dependent upon signs. That's dependent upon miracles. We want some new thing. We want some new experience. Just pump me up. What Jesus is going to illustrate here is that is a fickle, weak faith. Genuine faith. A strong faith is built upon the words of Christ. I mean, that's the strong foundation. Those who hear and do the words of Christ are the ones who have that strong foundation. And so the Galileans had that type of weak, fickle, shallow faith. Give us a sign. Give us a wonder, and that then is going to pump us up in faith, and we're going to believe in you. Yeah, until the allure wears off from this sign, and then you're going to want another one. A lasting faith is a faith firmly grounded in the Word of Christ and the testimony of the Father. A lasting faith is a faith fueled not ultimately by miracles, but by the Word of God. And that's why, as I alluded to earlier, back in John 2, after Jesus cleanses the temple and performs miracles in Jerusalem, It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And you think, wonderful success. But then it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knows what kind of faith that is. He knows the tires are pumped up right now, but give it some time and you're going to be driving on four flats. So he didn't entrust himself to those folks who just had that sign-dependent faith. Now, I said that Jesus was fully intending to heal this man's son, this official's son. This is clear in that the man doesn't respond directly to what Jesus says about signs. Clearly, this is just said to address those who are around. He doesn't try to prove the sincerity of his faith. He doesn't try to say something like, oh, I'm not dependent. He doesn't even address it. Like any desperate father in such a situation, he simply says, sir... Come down before my child dies. So Jesus responds in verse 50. What does he say? Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. With that, Jesus heals the man's son. 20 miles away, he does it without a flashy miracle, without any witnesses. Why? Because he would have this man's faith. He would have this man's faith founded upon his words. Not a flashy miracle. He wanted those around him to understand that strong faith is a faith in what Jesus speaks, not merely the miracles he performs. And now look at the man's response in verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And so the man takes Jesus at his word, takes Jesus at his word. He didn't witness a miracle. He didn't see power go out from Jesus' hands. He didn't see anything. He simply heard Jesus' words, trusted Jesus, uh, that he was who he claimed to be, was capable of healing his son, and he goes on his way. Now, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, notice the father, this is the next day. The father believed Jesus to the degree that he didn't rush to get home. He took his time. This is the next day at this point. It's this a 20, 15, 20 mile walk. He could have gone home, but he, he waited till the next day. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So yeah, that's exactly when Jesus said those words. And uh, this healing is a direct result of Jesus' spoken word. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee, the first one being the water to wine. Now, this man now having that initial faith, now has his faith multiplied. And so he sees the result of Jesus' words. And then it says, and he himself believed in all his household. So now he believed, and now he believes. He believed, and now he, I don't want to say really believed, but I mean, yes. I mean, my faith was well-placed, because now I see the results. And his whole household then believes as well. Now, I want to show you something incredible about this text. And I think this is going to illustrate the point that Jesus' words to this man were really meant kind of calling out and, and maybe even judgment towards the Galileans, his own people that were surrounding him while he spoke to this Gentile uh, leader. We started out by highlighting the fact that Jesus' earthly ministry challenged and confounded and contradicted many. A lot of people had to come to the realization that Jesus was not the Messiah they thought he would be. He rejected those they thought would be a shoe into the kingdom, and he loved those that they thought would be uh, rejected. Again, he overtly challenged the religious culture of the day while breaking social barriers to show the love of God. He's doing this again in our passage in a way that might not be immediately obvious. Now, look again, verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, if you are a student of the scriptures, you study, you're familiar with the word, that phrase might trigger something in you. You might see that and begin to think of another passage in the Bible. 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. The context of 1 Kings 17, this is one of the lowest points in Israel's history. One of their lowest spiritual points. They are apostates. They are idol worshippers. They're being led by the most wicked king in Israel's history, Ahab, and his prophet-killing wife, Jezebel. At this time, the prophet Elijah, whom the Lord would use to perform mighty miracles is at the Lord's direction being housed by a widow, a Gentile woman in a place called Zarephath. And so this is the context. Elijah kind of on the run. Jezebel's wicked. Jezebel wants his head. Uh, apostate Israel. And uh, he's been prophesying against and warning of God's judgment. And now here he is with this widow, Gentile woman, being housed and fed by her at the Lord's direction. Okay, so First Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's a judgment on Israel. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. God's miraculous provision for his prophet. Seemed a little gross, but that's his provision. Anyway, ravens are going to feed him. I hope they don't feed him like a, like a mother bird. Yeah. <clears throat> Never mind. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread whew, Okay, good. and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then, in the, word of, then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belonged to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and asked and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have, I, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Uh, famine. They have nothing. She's at the end of a rope. This is it. Uh, we're going to die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and, uh, and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Elijah comes to a Gentile city, Sidon, meets a Gentile woman who has a severe need. We're going to die. I'm going to die. My son's going to die. He tells her to do something. Trust me, you're going to have food. Go and prepare because the Lord God has said this. And she, this Gentile woman, responds to this Jewish prophet in faith, responding to the word of the Lord and obeys and goes and makes the bread and so on. And so now Elijah is housed with this woman. By the way, there's a few things in this passage he says to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Well, that kind of reminds me of Jesus with the woman at the well, right? And then there's another miracle there where you have the multiplication of the flour and the oil, and so that they're fed for many days, which kind of reminds me of Jesus with the fish and the bread multiplied. And so it seems like there's a pattern of these miracles of Elijah, which then get reproduced and uh, accounts with Elijah. They get reproduced in the ministry of Jesus, it appears. But then I want you to see something amazing in verse 17. And so here's this Gentile woman, meets the Jewish prophet, believes the word of the Lord. And really, as a result of Elijah's ministry, this woman and, and her son are saved. I, I mean, physically saved. They're going to die. They're going to eat sticks. I mean, that's it, you know, and they're going to die. So, so they're saved, really, through by Elijah showing up. That's God's mercy upon them. But then look what happens, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he comes and saves them from the brink of death. And now while he's there, the son becomes becomes ill and is going to die. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? (laughs) You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She sees this as a judgment upon her lifestyle, a judgment upon her sin. Is this what's happening? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. I mean, Elijah's desperate at this point, right? I mean, Elijah's thinking, yeah, I've come to this woman's house. Yes, there's been miracles, but now the son, and she's going to blame me, right? And uh, so he's crying out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, What? See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. See, your son lives. And then a Gentile woman responding to the miracle of the reviving of her son with what? Faith that says, now I know that what you're saying is true and her faith is multiplied. Now, you might think, okay, I see parallel there. I see miracles. I see the son being revived. I see your son will live. I see a Gentile who responds first in faith, but then even with greater faith after seeing the result of the son coming, being revived. But is that a stretch? Well, I want you to look in Luke 4. Look look in Luke 4. I want you to see how Jesus himself uses the passage from 1 Kings 17. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is really kicking off his earthly ministry, and he's reading in the synagogue, the book of Isaiah. And there, as he's reading the book of Isaiah, he's claiming that the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled in his own ministry. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, he says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? How can it be? So educated, so eloquent, seems to be so wise. Is this not Joseph's son? I mean, we know him. We know his mom. We know his dad. We've seen him grow up. I mean this can't be. They don't understand. Shocked. But then look in verse 23 of Luke 4. He said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. But we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Where have we heard that before? We just heard that in John 4, when Jesus comes to Galilee. Nazareth, where he was raised, that's where he is in Luke 4, Galilee, where he lived as an adult, that's what we see in John 4. Both of these are like hometowns. He says here in Nazareth that you're going to say to me, or truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Exactly what he says in Galilee. The implication being that they're not going to believe his words. They're not going to believe his words. And not only going to not believe his words, but what are they going to demand? Position, to heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want signs. Give us signs. Show us those miracles. Similar context, right? Nazareth, hometown. People want signs, and he says a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. Galilee, hometown. They want signs. Says a prophet's not acceptable except in his uh, is, is acceptable except in his hometown. It's a very similar context. But then look what Jesus does next in Luke four. After saying this, in verse 25, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What is he saying? He just starts quoting that passage we just saw in 1 Kings or alluding to it and says, listen. He's really addressing their ethnic pride or ethnic entitlement. And he says, remember Elijah, all the widows that he could have helped there during that time of famine. And who did he go to? A Gentile. Remember Elisha, all kinds of lepers that could have been healed. But who did he heal? Naaman the Syrian. They, Jesus' audience here understands exactly what he's saying. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. So, so they go from, so eloquent, listen to his words. Is this not Joseph's son? Incredible. Do we want to kill him? What's the difference? Because he just called them out and said, uh, you know what you're like? You're like Israel. The Old Testament under King Ahab, under Jezebel, at his most apostate place in their history. That's what you're like, idol worshipers, immoral. That's what you're like. The implication being that you're like they were. And really what Jesus is saying is, my ministry is going to be a lot like Elijah. And although there are many Jews here, you're going to see me turn to the Gentiles. Now, the, the salvation to the Gentiles doesn't open up fully until after Christ's ascension, but we see little glimmers of it throughout his earthly ministry. And so, now back to John 4. Go back to John 4. You're not going to flip around anymore, that's it. Back to John 4. Jesus comes to his hometown, Galilee. Galileans respond, not with genuine faith, but with a fickle, sign-dependent faith. And in that context, Jesus doesn't respond to them By quoting 1 Kings 17, he doesn't respond to them by alluding to that story that he did in Luke 4. But in that exact same context, what he does is he actually then performs the very same miracle as Elijah. And so he actually lives out that story uh, there in Galilee. And so he performs the same miracle as Elijah for the same type of person as Elijah did right there in the view of the Galileans. This is a miracle without showmanship, which the Galileans could not see, which they would not benefit from, but which would benefit the Gentile man. And so, in the midst of his Jewish brethren, desperate to see signs, he turns to a Gentile official, an official of Herod's court of all people, and performs a miracle for him instead of the Jews, and says, go, your son will live. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Whereas, you know, think about that just for a minute here. Elijah is desperate. Uh, Elijah thinks that this, uh, this woman's son's death is going to come back on him, and, and he's desperate, and he uh, cries out to the Lord, whereas Jesus knows exactly what the Lord's going to do. Elijah desperately lays himself over the son, just cries out to the Lord three times. Jesus just speaks a word, heals this boy 20 miles away. And so if Jesus, in this instance in our passage, is operating as a greater Elijah, And if this official is serving as the representative Gentile, then again, what does that mean about all the Galileans around him? Well, they then are what compared to apostate Judaism? So in the midst of such Jewish unbelief, the only one for whom Jesus would do a miracle is a Gentile. A Gentile who was desperate to see his son back from the brink of death, just like the widow at Zarephath. And so the Galileans, thinking that Jesus was one who had... Maybe something to prove to them. The Galileans thinking that he was their hometown boy. Thinking that in his eyes, they certainly would have favor because, hey, we're his people. They had to learn that Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. And we, as we see Jesus claiming the outcast and showing mercy on the forgotten and bringing justice to the victimized, we may think that he's come against individuals who are rich. Some type of liberation theology against those who are rich and influential. But just then we see Jesus heal a boy from a rich, politically connected, high-profile home. When Jesus saw the royal official from Herod's court, he didn't see status. He didn't see notoriety. He didn't see influence. What he saw was the soul of a man who was desperate for the mercy of God and who had the faith to place in Jesus. And although it's rare for a rich man... An influential man to come to Christ, this one does. Why? Because like the woman at the well, Jesus was seeking him. And just like that, when we think we have Jesus figured out, we got him in our little box, we got him in our system, we got him properly categorized, placed firmly within uh, our preconceptions, we realize that Jesus isn't quite who we thought he was. He's not the savior of some, but of all. He's come to level the ground so that all men and women of every walk and every language and every race and every status not only must be saved, but can be saved. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we don't have to apologize for Jesus. We thank you that we don't have to uh, alter his image. We don't have to... uh, Contort or disfigure who Christ is to make him acceptable. We don't have to do anything except to for proclaim the Christ of the Bible. We thank you that Jesus is one that we never have to be ashamed of. We never have to be embarrassed about, but it's a joy to claim Jesus as our Savior and Lord. It's a joy to preach Christ. It's a joy to share Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for who He is. pray that you'd help us to understand who Jesus is from his own word. Help us to accept the Christ of Scripture. Help us to see those areas in which we have altered the Jesus of the Bible for our own purposes. Help us to see those areas in which our preconceptions, our assumptions, our biases have really made for us a Jesus of our own mind instead of the Christ of Scripture. Help us be confronted by Jesus. Help us to be willing to be confounded and contradicted by the Christ of Scripture. Help us to see him for who he is. Lord, we thank you that you have, for the purpose of salvation, you've leveled the playing field. You have created a situation where not only must all be saved, but all can be saved. And so if there's any this morning who think that they're beyond salvation, there's no need of salvation, I pray you'd help them to see that all must be saved, regardless of status, regardless of pedigree, regardless of background, regardless of lifestyle, all must be saved. And if there's any here this morning who believe they're beyond salvation, that Jesus would not save them, would not forgive them, would not adopt them, we pray that you'd help them to see that they can be saved. So all must and all can. We pray that you'd send us home with that message. And then, Lord, we just pray this morning that if there's any who have not yet received Jesus, that they would see his love for them, see that they need to be saved, they need to be reconciled to the Father, and that that's only through Jesus, And that Jesus has come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I pray that they'd embrace your Son, the Savior and Lord. Help us who are Christians just to be in awe of who Jesus is. Help us to love him more. Help us to be reminded of his love for us. And help us to live out our lives as those who have an overwhelming sense of indebtedness uh, to you through Christ because of your mercy. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.